chapter number 7, verse number 1, <clears throat> Exodus 7 and 1. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to begin passing around. I said that we were going to do this a couple weeks ago, and it did not get done. We're going to do it tonight. Uh, for those who have a desire to read the Bible through, and uh, many of you have been working at it already, reading the Bible through in uh, 2011, uh, we're going to pass around. Uh, it's going to be coming by an opportunity for you to sign up that you are reading your Bible, endeavoring to read your Bible through, and also an opportunity for you to check off each month that you can complete. And um, I, I know from my own experience and uh, from both doing the right thing and not doing the right thing that uh, it is impossible to grow spiritually without staying consistently in the Word of God. Amen. Let me say that again. It, it's, it's virtually impossible to grow spiritually without staying consistently in the Word of God. And, and let's not fall in the trap of thinking that by coming to church on Sunday that we're staying consistently in the Word of God. Amen. That's a good start, and that's important. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But we need to have a personal relationship with God's Word by reading the Word of God. And I know sometimes in life there's up times and down times and times when we gain focus and lose focus. But I pray right now that God will get a hold of you with a conviction to uh, read your Bible through in the year of 2011. And uh, this last year, I'm sorry, this last week, uh, the last few days, in fact, during our Bible reading, if you're reading through uh, using the one-year Bible, um, we have been reading about the exodus from Egypt and how that God delivered His chosen people from Pharaoh and from the taskmaster in Egypt using this man named Moses. And during this fascinating portion of Scripture, this passage of Scripture, it's really spoken to me the last several days, and I want to just share with you, uh, this is not anything profound, probably nothing you've not ever heard before, but I do believe uh, that as we get into the Word of God, it reinforces or reinvigorates our faith or reinforces what we already know and what we already believe. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, and that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine enemies, my people, uh, my, I'm sorry, mine armies, the, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And I want to focus tonight just for a little while on the plagues of uh, Egypt that uh, God placed upon Egypt and also the negotiation of between Pharaoh and Moses. And there are a few points that I want to pull out of that uh, for your admonition and for your study and understanding tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. I pray, Lord God, that each of us would be growing becoming what you would have us to be. I pray, Lord God, that you would enable us, Jesus, to move forward in our relationship with you and move forward, Lord God, uh, in our ministries and move forward in our commitment to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. <coughs> God bless you. You may be seated. Um, uh, uh, there are a couple of you that are a part of uh, the classes at Los Angeles College of Ministry, and uh, we are... Uh, teaching right now about uh, the Pentateuch, and um, some people have never heard of the Pentateuch before, uh, but the Pentateuch are, is the uh, way that the Hebrew people reference the first five books of their uh, Talmud or Torah or the Holy Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the Pentateuch. And uh, you probably, if you know much about uh, geometry or entomology, the study of words, know that penta means five. 
right? Penta means five. Uh, pentagram is that with five sides. So a Pentateuch has to do with five, and it is the first five books of the Bible. The Hebrew re- Hebrews refer to these five books as the Torah, which means uh, instruction or law. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the reason it's called Pentateuch, because Penta means five, and Tuch actually meant a case that was used for carrying a scroll. And, uh, and then it was later, the word Tuch was re- used to describe just a scroll itself. So basically it is five scrolls. Now, one thing I want you to understand about the Pentateuch in the Hebrew mindset, uh, and so it's, it's legitimately what it is, is not five books, it's five divisions or five-fifths of one book, the book of Moses or the book of the law. And uh, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, we see them as five separate books, but they are five divisions or five-fifths of one book called the Law of Moses or the Book of Moses. And in the New Testament, whenever Jesus or the Apostle Paul speaks of the Law and the Prophets, it's talking about what we call the Old Testament. And when it says the law, it's talking about the Torah or these five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that were written by the writer named Moses. And so it's referred to as the book of Moses or the book of the law. Now, this man named Moses, about whom we are reading right now in Exodus, was a fascinating figure that essentially, besides Jesus Christ, transcends every individual figure in Scripture. We know the significance and importance of Abraham as the father of the faithful. We know David, the king that expanded Israel ten times, the man after God's own heart. But as far as significance and impact on the world, on the kingdom of Israel, and then by extension the kingdom of God, there is no one that transcends this man whose name was Moses. Moses was a priest. He functioned in the role of a priest. He functioned in the role of a prophet. He functioned in the role of a king. And it is really fascinating if you can somehow pull yourself away from the fact that you're looking at a story or reading a story that you have known from before you even went to school. Many of you, you knew the stories of Moses. And and look at this as a real person who literally went in and delivered 600,000 men together with their wives and children from a leader, dictator named Pharaoh, took them into the wilderness, gave them a set of laws, a constitution from God through Moses to govern their life that in by extension ended up governing the lives of millions of Hebrew people in perpetuity in the future, and not only that, but influenced the Judeo-Christian tradition. One man. Amazing. Not only that, but he led this huge group of people. We, we know it was God through the Holy Spirit, through the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them. But this one man was the one that the Bible says he spoke to God face to face. Moses had this special relationship with God. Two different occasions, Moses went up to Mount Sinai all by himself and spent 40 days alone in the presence of the Lord, communing with God. He had a special calling, special relationship, special connection with Jehovah, and his life made a greater impact than any person that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. The fascinating story... Of, uh, of Moses, how that he was schooled in Egypt, but uh, then at a certain point refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose rather to suffer affliction. We'll look at that verse in just a minute. But uh, uh, he organized God's people. He delivered them. He gave them the laws to teach them how to live. So the story that we're looking at tonight called the Exodus is full of what we call Typology. Anybody, everybody say that word, typology. Typology. What typology is, is in the Old Testament, 
you discover that there are, as you become a student of Scripture, very many things in the Old Testament that are physical examples of the new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, which is a spiritual connection, we see these things foreshadowed through types and shadows in the Old Testament. And the story of Exodus is very, very significant because it is full of foreshadowing or typology, and and here's the key word, of New Testament salvation. When we were saved from sin, we can discover things about our deliverance from sin by and, and our new life in Jesus Christ by looking at the children of Israel's deliverance from They were brought out of Egypt, went through the, the, the time in the wilderness, and then into the promised land. And you will discover many things that are foreshadowing what we were going to experience in New Testament salvation. So if you look at the Old Testament just as a group of stories, it's pretty interesting. But when you recognize the depth of the typology and symbolism in the Old Testament, you recognize that this is so rich. And you can put your little hat on with the light up here on top and go mining deep down into the Old Testament and find principles that relate to the life that you're living today in 2011 seeking to serve God. So this uh, story in Exodus is the clearest foreshadowing in all of the Old Testament of salvation and redemption and deliverance that we experience through Jesus Christ. Now specifically, if you uh, wanted to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want you to go back on your own, if you're interested, and look at this passage of Scripture, because this passage in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul, basically takes time to share some of these things that we should learn from the stories in Exodus. Specifically, the Apostle Paul talks about how their baptism through the Red Sea resembles our water baptism and how they're following the cloud and the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire resembles our New Testament salvation of following or being led by the Holy Spirit. In verse 11 specifically, it says, regarding all the things that happened to Moses and the children of Israel, it says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples and they are written for our admonition. They were written for our teaching. They were written so we could learn upon whom the ends of the world are come. He's talking about the church. The things that were written in the Old Testament were written for the church. And uh, ostensibly we would say that these were written for the Hebrew people so they could understand their history. And and through the giving of the law they could understand how to govern their lives. Uh, But the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, these were written for the church for our example so that we would know what to do and what not to do. I believe that passage starts, it says, I would not that ye would be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of the fact that all of these things in Exodus relate to where you are today. And so by extension, I would say a Christian who has very limited insight, recall, or understanding of the Old Testament is a Christian that is ignorant of many things that they need to know in terms of living for God. Do you agree with me? Amen. So what I want to focus on for just a little bit are the plagues of Egypt and then Pharaoh's negotiation with Moses. I also wanted to talk about the Passover, but I'm trying to learn how not to put so much content in that I end up going an hour. Everybody said amen. <laughs> so, for, for uh, sake of clarification, but in order to go quickly, let me just say we understand that God led His called people, the sons of Abraham, into Egypt, the sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes. And they went in as a family, but 400 years later, they're a nation of about 2 million strong, 600,000 men. After 400 years in Egypt in slavery, while they were there, interestingly, they ended up being strengthened and growing and expanding, even in the midst of their persecution. 
But during their time where at first in Egypt it was great. They were living off the fat of the land. They were blessed. They were known by Joseph's family. And anybody connected with Joseph had a special place in the heart of Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's son. And then maybe Pharaoh's grandson. And so on and so forth. Until a day arose where there came a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And decided to pull these Hebrew people and cause them to be indentured servants. Also known as a.k.a. slaves. And they would work under the, uh, uh, under the direction of taskmasters to build all the great things that you can go and see in Egypt today. The great pyramids, and many of which probably over the years have uh, uh, fallen prey to deterioration and, and require archaeological digs to find these things that, he, that God's chosen people, the Hebrew people, helped to build there during that 400 years that they were in Egypt. And the slavery became worse and worse. And uh, not only that, but, uh, uh, but Pharaoh began to fear the children of Israel because of their expansion and uh, began to persecute them. And they, they begin to cry out to God and moan and, and say, God, will you deliver us? And God heard them. And in the meantime, God had been in the process of preparing a deliverer. Even though Moses didn't realize what was happening in his life, everything that he had gone through, he had gone through on purpose so God's will could be done through him. So these 600,000 men are part of this slave labor force. And God was prospering Israel in the midst of their persecution. So as I mentioned, Pharaoh began to fear the Hebrews. What did he have to fear in them? Well, they were becoming so great. They were having so many babies. And God was blessing them in the midst of Pharaoh's persecution. He was afraid that they would become so strong that they would rise up and overthrow his control of them. Or if an army came to attack Egypt, rather than staying out of the fight or fighting for Egypt, maybe they would join with the army from the outside to conquer Egypt. So in his perhaps irrational fear, Pharaoh decided to fix the problem by killing all of the babies that are born that are males, allowing the little baby girls to live. But all the males, he told the midwives, toss them into the Nile River. And in the Nile River, they will meet their demise, and this people can therefore be controlled. And uh, so as these boys were being thrown in the Nile, the story goes that there was one boy. Um, actually, there was a number of boys, but one boy in particular that was saved from Pharaoh's efforts and Pharaoh's uh, attempt to destroy this possibility that the people would be delivered out of his hand. And it's interesting to note, have you guys ever noticed the irony of this before? That the very thing that Pharaoh was fearing and trying to destroy, he brought into his house and raised him and educated him and prepared him to be the very one that would lead the very thing that he feared the most. Isn't it amazing how God can turn Satan's evil schemes into a means of deliverance for God's people? How many times have you seen that in the Bible? The devil meant it for bad, or you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. And even when Satan looks like he's working, maybe behind the scenes God's working. Maybe God's given Satan room to do his deal because God says, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to turn it around. And when you're afflicted, don't say you're afflicted of God. Amen. No, God's not afflicting me, but God's allowing it for some reason. Amen. God is allowing it. And this, through this affliction... Through this effort to destroy, we know how God orchestrated. It's a beautiful story of uh, Amram and Jochebed and their daughter Miriam taking this little baby. He said, this is a good kid. We want to save him. Put him in the, in the uh, uh, little tiny ark in the bulrushes there in the Nile. And there Pharaoh's daughter brought him in and raised him in the household. Now, a lot of things about Moses' life that... It, it, just on a casual observation, you don't catch all these awesome things that let us know that God was preparing him to deliver his people out of, out of Egypt, to carry them through this time in the wilderness, to write the book of the law, with all, uh, to, to, to basically prophesy or uh, 
retro forth tell everything that had happened from the first man in Genesis all the way through the second beginning, the first beginning with Adam, the second beginning with Noah, the third beginning with Abraham, God calling and letting his name be exalted through this people. All of this whole story and then the giving of the law and leading them through a wilderness. Everything that Moses had gone through in his 80 years of preparation was preparing him for what God was going to use him for. Moses is 80 and he hasn't even started his assignment yet. And this, this wasn't in the days of Adam where people lived 900 years. When 80 was like being 12. <laughs> this was when people had normal lifespans more, more in sync with where we are today. Maybe a little bit longer. 115, 120 years. 80 years old. 80 years. 40 years raised in Pharaoh's household as a prince in Egypt. Educated. Fed all the finest of foods. Given all the uh, opportunities to travel and look around and observe things. Then you know the story that uh, Moses recognized because here, here, and I'm going over this very quickly, but for the first three years of Moses' life, he was raised in a Hebrew home. Because even though as a baby, he was recognized by Pharaoh's daughter, said, I'll raise that. I want to save that baby. Something got a hold of her heart. Miriam said, I know somebody that can take care of him. And it was his own mother. And she was getting paid to do what she wanted to do, which is raise her own baby and put something into this little child. He could have been three, five, seven years old when he was weaned and brought into the palace of Pharaoh. But there at 40 years old, when he saw the persecution of the Hebrew people, something rose up in him. And the Bible says in Hebrews, it says it this way. It says, when he came of age, in Hebrews 11:24, when he came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of their reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Something was at work in Moses' heart. Something was planted into him more than just the tradition of the Hebrew people. There was faith that his mother put into this lad. There was something that God invested into him. And when he came of age, 40 years of age, he chose to suffer affliction with God's people. And when he took the life of the taskmaster, buried him in the sand, the next day he found out that the word was out and Pharaoh would kill him. And he fled into the wilderness and traveled in the wilderness of Sinai and served there as a shepherd for 40 more years. So you put 40 and 40 together, you come up with 80, which is the exact age of Moses when he went before Pharaoh to say, let my people go. 80 years of age. Amen. Think about that. Somebody's like, oh, I'm getting so old. And, you know, God's through with me. God's working and using these young men. God's through with me, young ladies. I want you to understand everything that you're going through in life. If you have faith in God, you can believe that God's using it to prepare you for something special. Amen. See, because if, if Moses hadn't been raised in Pharaoh's household, he wouldn't have the intellectual, educational training and wherewithal to write these five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are so insightful and deep books. And we know it was the Holy Spirit that breathed across the vessel. The vessel being Moses. But Moses had the wisdom and the insight and the background to be able to write. I, I personally don't believe that the Holy Spirit just overshadowed these people and they wrote about things that they had no clue about. But they wrote about things that they had experience with. And then the Holy Spirit gave them direction. And God breathed through Moses. And Moses was being prepared during those 40 years to be able to write the book of the law and write the story of Genesis and write with authority. And then guess what? He's 40 years traveling in Sinai as a shepherd, leading the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and his new wife, Zipporah, and going all through this wilderness, never realizing 
that God was preparing him strategically to lead God's people in the wilderness for 40 years. So he could tell the story as we read in Leviticus and Numbers. The story of all the places that they went and all the things that they experienced and where God gave him the law. He knew where he was. He wasn't just in the wilderness. He knew where he was pretty much at all times. He had been prepared. Forty years as a shepherd, wasting time, so it seems. But God's preparing him to lead two, three, four million people as the, as the number were expanding through a time of wilderness. God had been preparing him. God's strategic. But the thing is, man, we are clueless about what he's doing when he's doing it. And we're like, man, this doesn't make any sense. God's forgotten me. And we get frustrated. How, how often do we get frustrated with God? You look through the stories of Scripture. Brother, uh, last Wednesday night, Brother, um, uh, Brother Franco really got me thinking when he talked about the uh, uh, nature of creation, how that everything happened... Uh, strategically and systematically and built one upon the other and how God was working. And I looked through all the stories of Scripture. So many stories of Scripture bear that out, that God does things in stages. And He rarely just instantaneously pulls something out of the hat that's completely unexpected and we're unprepared for because He does things systematically. Amen? And you'll see this even with the the, the plagues that happened in Egypt, uh, that He could have come in, you know, God could have come in and said, and and had Moses come in and say, Pharaoh, let my people go, or God's fingers are going to go around your throat, and if you don't believe it, watch this right now, and all of a sudden the finger of God could have closed off His air passage. I know it's funny, but it's true. They could have walked out of there that day. But God had a plan, and He systematically... uh, First of all, hardened Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And all the things that happened were happening strategically for God's purpose, one thing after another. And and I could go on and on. Look at the story of Joseph. God was unfolding the plan beautifully. Someone said it this way. We, we, we look at a rose that's closed up and we're like, let's open this thing up, man. Let's make it pretty. And what do we do? We mangle it. But you let God unfold the rose and He does it just the right way and it looks gorgeous and beautiful. And in our lives, we've got to trust God's timing and trust God's purpose and stay consistent, stay in tune, stay in love with Jesus and say, I may not understand it. It may not be my timing, but you're an on-time God and you'll come when I need you. You may not come when I want you, but you'll come at the right time. And in the meantime, while I'm waiting, you're doing something. God's doing something. Amen. And we could go on and on down that path. So Moses, at 80 years of age, his brother Aaron at 83, God directs them. We'll skip all the story, the, the amazing story, the burning bush and God speaking to Moses, giving him the three signs. But Moses and Aaron go, Aaron, Go into Pharaoh. Now, you have to understand something about Egypt during this time and Pharaoh to really understand this story and really catch the full impact of what's happening here. During this time, this was during a time of uh, pagan religion or pagan beliefs, which means this was not a Judeo-Christian world that Moses was walking into. This was a land where people were ruled by superstition, And they worshipped multiple gods, similar to in Greek mythology. There was Poseidon, the god of the sea, Zeus, the supreme uh, god. Uh, There was, uh, come on, help me now. There was the god of wine, was his name uh, Dionysus, uh, Adonis, who else? Aphrodite. All all these other gods. And what, what basically pagan beliefs were, were they would observe... Things like animals, uh, things like uh, celestial beings, the moon, the stars, the sun, things like the earth itself, the sea. And they understood, hey, the sea, sometimes it becomes trouble and it's stormy. So there's a God there that's mad. Or sometimes the, the, the earth brings forth great harvest and great fruit and, 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 and blesses us. And other times it's, it's famine and it's dry and cracked. So there must be a God of the earth or a God of the soil. And, and uh, sometimes the sun shines and, and causes the flowers.
flowers to bloom, and sometimes the sun. So there must be a god of the a god of the sun, and uh, and and uh, we're blessed because of uh, 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 of our um, uh, our cattle and our uh, all of our possessions. So maybe there's a god of cattle, and all of these things were worshipped, never realizing, never occurring to them that there was a supreme god who ordered everything and put everything into place. Because really, if you think about paganism, it doesn't make sense that there would be all of these competing gods and there's not really anybody in charge and they all they get mad at each other and stuff. It's just, it's what it is, is taking the image of man and turning it into God. So this was paganism. And so in Egypt during this time, we can go back and we can prove archaeologically with writings and drawings and so forth that they worshipped multiple gods as pagan believers, <coughs> we can look at their drawings, and oftentimes these gods in the drawings and in the writings, hieroglyphic writings, are represented, many of them, with heads of animals. And uh, there was uh, uh, one that had the head of a beetle. One of these significant gods had the head of a cow. One of these significant goddesses had the face of a frog. And uh, each of these gods were known as controlling or having influence over certain areas. And uh, there was the god of the Nile, a highly respected god, because the Nile was such a blessing to them. The river uh, brought replenishing. They were able to wash and bathe and get their water for cooking and drinking and all recreation. And, And all of this came from the Nile. So there's a god that's blessing them, they saw, from the Nile, a god of productivity, a god of the sky who controlled whether rain would fall or storms would come or hail would fall. And this god of the sky and then the god of the sun, the god of the soil that controlled all of these things. And, all, and then finally, there's one other god we haven't mentioned. That is Pharaoh himself was worshipped in Egypt as one of the gods who wasn't serving the other gods, but he was one up together with them. And what you will notice, fascinating, is that the 12 plagues that came against Egypt came because Pharaoh asked this question. Look at Exodus 5, verse 1 through 3. Exodus 5, 1 says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. So Moses and Aaron come in before Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, We want our people to go worship in the wilderness, to go worship our God. And Pharaoh says, who's your God? I don't know your God. I'm not going to let you go. But our God tells us we've got to go. Who is your God? I know the God of the sun. I don't want to make him mad. I know the God of the sky. I don't want to make him mad. I know the God of the soil. I certainly don't want to make him mad. I know the God of the Nile. I don't want to make him mad. But your God, I don't care. Who is He? Who is He? And the ten plagues upon Egypt were a show or display to Pharaoh, to all of Egypt, to their children, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, to whom the stories would be told of who the God of Israel was in comparison or in conjunction or in conflict, if you would, to the false gods, little g, of Egypt. So what happened is, is, uh, Pharaoh was so angry at their request. He said, you guys are asking to go out into the wilderness and worship. You must not be working hard enough. You've got too much free time on your hands. So I'm going to double your labor. And what he did is rather than delivering straw to those that were required to make bricks under the hand of the taskmaster to build the great buildings and build the great pyramids of Egypt, uh, he said, you've got to make the same amount of bricks, but we're not bringing any straw. You've got to go out into the fields and pick up stubble and use it. Interesting, I just read this today, that they have dug up portions of Ramses, the city in Egypt, where there are stones and bricks that are made without stubble, while all the rest of them were made with straw. Very interesting that they have 
found these things. And so what happened is Moses and Aaron come out, and before long, not only do they have Pharaoh mad, but now they have all the Hebrew people mad too. Because not only did, they not de- did he not deliver them, but he made their life miserable by causing them to have to do twice the work. They said, we cannot do this. We were working hard to make this many bricks when you delivered straw. But now we've got to go out and scrounge up stubble to be able to make these bricks. And he doubled their labors. Then in chapter number 7, Moses comes in with a sign from God. He throws down his rod. It becomes a serpent. And once the rod becomes a serpent, Pharaoh calls in his magicians, witch doctors, those that worked on the dark side. And they were able to take their rods and throw them down and turn them into serpents as well. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And Moses is there. He got his his staff. He throws it down and becomes a serpent. He's like, yeah, check that out. And then the other magicians come in and throws theirs down and they become serpents. And I think Moses is saying, God, what's going on here now? Okay. Uh, I was fascinated when mine turned into a serpent, but now I'm like, are you really in charge? Is, is this message really the message that I need? Of course, then the uh, end of the story is that, that Moses' serpent ended up devouring all the other serpents of the magician's rods. And then Moses took his, and there was only one rod left. But I, I want to look specifically at these plagues for a minute. If you can pull them up, Sarah, if you have them there. And um, uh, um, and uh, I, I want to look at some of these specifically. Um, go ahead and click it. Plague number one. Let's see here. Plague number one was the plague of the blood. And uh, then the, the number two, what, where he, he turned the Nile River into blood. I don't know if you are going to notice this, but just in case you don't, I want you to bring it to your attention. These false gods, these pagan gods, the God of the river Nile. Jehovah was showing, I have power over the God of the river Nile. And while the magicians could come in and turn little glasses of water into blood, Moses turned the entire Nile River into blood, and and the magicians couldn't stop it. They couldn't change it back to water for seven days. Not just the water in the Nile, but the water in everybody's glasses and cups and containers and jars and cisterns, all was turned to blood. And so God was showing Pharaoh who he was. I'm the true God. You think there's a God of the river? No, no, there's only one God, and he also is God of the river. And plague two was the the, the plague of the frogs that came up. And uh, this plague could very well have been targeted or focused on this premium goddess in Egypt who in the drawings had the face of a frog. And then uh, the uh, the uh, lice, or um, uh, they could have been like gnats or mosquitoes, something that just drove people nuts, drove them crazy. And then plague number four was uh, the plague of the flies. And but but for the lice, he took the soil and threw it up, and and it became these uh, these little um, th- these little flying beasts. And of course, that was showing dominion over the god of the soil. And then uh, uh, the uh, uh, livestock in plague number five died because the skies opened up. Uh, I'm sorry, the livestock got all of these uh, sicknesses and diseases. And so the God that had the face of the cow that blessed their, their, their livestock was challenged. And then the boils, so the God of health was, was challenged. And then in number seven, the hail come and stripped and beat down. It was like fiery hail. It gave the appearance of being red. And it beat down the crops that were coming up then, which was flax and barley, which had to do with making their drinks and making their clothes. But the harvest of wheat was spared until the next one, which was the locust that came in and destroyed and ate up and consumed and devoured everything. And then uh, all of these things were, were basically dealing with the perception that there were these false gods that were controlling these things. And, and, he, and Pharaoh had said, who is this God? And, and Jehovah said, I'm not just the God of the river, but I'm also the God of the soil. I'm also, I'm, I'm also uh, the God of all of these other things that you worship. Uh, I am the one true God. And then number nine was the greatest to them because the greatest God in all of Egypt was Ra, the sun God. And, and Jehovah said 
tell them I'm going to make it dark. And it was dark, a darkness that could be felt for three days. And they were filled with fear and anguish and all of these things because Jehovah was proving to him, to them who he was. Now, the final thing I want to mention to you has to do with the negotiations that Pharaoh made with Moses when they were asking, when he was asking that they would be delivered. The first one is in Exodus chapter 8, verse 25. Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, Is it not meet for me to do so? For we shall sacrifice the abomination of Egyptians to the Lord our God. For the sake of time, I want to just point out that there are three things, three things that Pharaoh tried to negotiate with Moses. And Moses said, Let the people go and worship. First of all, he said, Go ahead and worship, but do it here in Egypt. Stay here. This really got my attention. Then a little while later, after a couple more plagues, he softened up and said, Okay, go three days in the wilderness to worship, but leave all your kids here. Yeah, Moses said, Not working. We're not negotiating that. The third thing Pharaoh said was, Go ahead, go. Take your kids if you want, but leave all your livestock and your holdings here. And Moses said, nope, no dice, because we're going. How could we go out there and not have sacrifices to offer? The point is, when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to deliverance, Satan will try to negotiate with us and say, essentially, I'll let you go. Go ahead and worship your God, but stay close to me. Go ahead and worship your God, but stay in Egypt. Go ahead and worship him, but I want you to remain under the sphere of my influence. And the deal is, so many people fall into the trap of, I like this God thing. I like worship. I like what I feel when I get together with God's people, but I want to keep living where I'm living. And when you try to live where you're living and serve God, come on. What did the Bible say? They said it was, Moses said, I can't do that. Let me read it to you. He said, I can't do that because it would be, in essence, despicable in the sight of God. He says, uh, it said, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness. We can't stay here and worship our God because they will destroy us. And you watch and see. If you try to live in Egypt and worship Jehovah, Egypt will destroy you. You won't thrive. You won't make it. You've got to make a decision. I'm coming out. That's why in the New Testament, the word church actually means the called out ones. Ecclesia, which means we decided we're not going to stay in this world. That doesn't mean I've got to move to a different house or to a different city logistically, but it means spiritually in my emotions, in the way that I live my life. I've got to move to a much better place. And you're going to receive Satan, an address change notification. You can send mail to where I used to live. I'm not going to be there anymore. Right? Because you can't live where you were living and truly be delivered. You can't be the person you were before and really be delivered. You can't stay in Egypt. Egypt always being a type of the world's system, the world's knowledge, the world's priorities. I can't stay there and thrive and be successful living for God. Moses had sense enough because he had that kind of relationship with God to tell Pharaoh, no, it's all or nothing. I'm not going to fool you and myself into believing that this is going to work, that I can stay here in Egypt and worship Jehovah. And then the second thing was, he said, okay, you can go, but leave your kids here. Amen? Now, some of you know what I'm talking about here because the enemy will tell you, Go ahead and live for God, but, but your kids ain't going with you. Moses said, I'm not leaving my kids in Egypt. Come on, some, someone. Do, do, do you understand that you've got to have that kind of determination that says, like Joshua said, it's not just me, it's me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And the enemy will make his play for your kids. That's why praying mamas uh, got to have power with God and got to have faith and believe. Even though the evidence makes it look like that Pharaoh's got your babies, there's something inside of you that says, when we go, we all going. There's going to be deliverance for our entire family. 
very interesting, very interesting that when uh, um, Joshua came into the city of, of Jericho, I, I believe it was Joshua coming into Jericho. Remember the story? He sent some people to spy it out. And they were housed and protected and delivered to safety by a harlot named Rahab. Remember the story? And they said, thanks for saving us. What do you want? Rahab said, I want my household to be saved when you come and destroy this city. That's all I care about. That's all I want. I want my household saved. He said, put the cord out the window. If the cord's out the window, when the walls fall, you'll be preserved and your family will be saved. There's got to get something in our spirit that says, I'm going to save my family too. My kids are going to be saved. My kids are going to be baptized. My kids are going to be on fire for God. I'm going to put those priorities into my children as well. I think it's really, really uh, foolish. It's foolish and it shows... Some people think, well, well, I'm being enlightened because I'm letting my kids make their own choices and own decisions. Why in the world would I choose these priorities and let Pharaoh and Egypt determine my kids' priorities? Why would I have these values for myself and, and not say, I'm going to make sure that my kids embrace these values as well. This is the determination that Moses had, and this is the determination that we have to have. If I'm delivered from Egypt, I want my kids to be delivered as well. If you're raising babies, if you're raising children, say, I'm not going to let uh, this world impose their values on my kids. See, that's why you got to be careful. you got to be careful letting your TV be your kid's babysitter. Can, can I say what I'm thinking here? you got to be careful not to let Netflix or DVDs or VHS, if you're still old school, determine what your kids' values are going to be. Now, I'm not saying you can't let them watch anything, but I am saying you can't let them watch just anything because that will determine the values that they will have. Something's got to come up in you that says, I'm not going to let Pharaoh and Egypt determine my kids' values because I came out and I want my kids to come out too. Yeah! So when I come out, I'm really coming out. I'm totally coming out and I'm taking my family with me. So finally Pharaoh says, okay, Tell you what, you go, you take your babies, but you leave all your possessions here. Why did Pharaoh do that? I think it's because he knew that it would pull them right back. Like the yo-yo effect. Those possessions will pull them right back. Their stuff will pull them right back. See, because when I came into the church, not only did I get sanctified... But all my stuff was sanctified because I recognized that that stuff was not mine and it didn't belong to Egypt, but it belonged to God. And there are too many people who, when they come into the house of the Lord, they have this issue with their stuff. You don't believe me? Well, what's the Bible? The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. He's like, cha-ching, I've done that my whole life. Oh, one more thing. Go sell all you possess. Give it to the poor. Come and take up your cross. Follow me. He went away sad because he had great possessions. What did Jesus recognize? Jesus recognized that he wanted to follow him, but he wanted to leave his possessions in Egypt. And those possessions would draw him back into Egypt. I want you to understand that when you come in, you've got to come in hook, line, and sinker. You've got to say, everything I have, my talents, my gifts, my everything is the Lord's. And thank God that He doesn't demand of us that we give up everything and He allows us to keep some things. But here's the deal with possessions. If you're not careful, possessions will possess you. And they'll pull you right out of favor with God. And they'll pull you right out of your commitment to God. And so when you come in, it's all or nothing. Amen, amen. There's lots of examples here, lots of powerful things, but I wanted to bring to your attention tonight the fact that Moses had a determination that said, when we walk out of bondage, 
When we walk out of Egypt, we ain't never coming back. They've been struggling with the Egyptian taskmaster, fearing the Egyptian spears, seeing the gleam of those swords and shuddering. 400 years in Egypt, hundreds of years in slavery. But when they walked out of Egypt and when they passed through the water, they never had to deal with one more taskmaster throughout the entire rest of their history. It was finished. See, if they had negotiated with Pharaoh, then it wouldn't have been a done deal. But they decided, I don't want any more of the old life. I don't want any more of the person that I used to be. I don't want any strings to be attached. I'm going in all the way. I'm diving in head first. I'm putting everything on the line. I'm Everything I've got, I'm gambling that this Jehovah is the God and that Moses is called of God. I'm following after the Lord. And, uh, and Pharaoh finally realized when God took his own firstborn child and in the temples throughout Egypt where they worshipped cattle, the firstborn of every cow, the firstborn of every animal died right there in their spot where people gathered together and worship them. And through the night, uh, the ancient Eastern tradition of mourning by giving forth a shrill cry and sound like, all throughout the houses, you could hear the screaming as everyone woke up and saw their firstborn child had died. God said, I'm not only the God of raw, the God of the sun, the God of the Nile River, the God of the earth, but I'm God over you as well, Pharaoh. I can take care of every situation. Amen. He is the one true and the living God. That's why he's worthy of prayer. His influence, his power is not limited to one sphere. It's not limited to one area, but He's the one. He's the one. He's the one that controls the sun and the stars. He put them in place. He controls the ebb and the flow of the sea. He has the seas in His own hand. There is one God. It is Jehovah. Let's stand together. And when you get Jesus, you got it all. How many like that story? When you get the sun, you get everything. When you get Jesus, when you get Jesus, when you get Jesus, you got it all. Mm-mm-mm. I, I, I wish you could feel what I'm feeling right now. Because serving the Lord, I don't need anything else. I come second in nothing. He is altogether in everything, and I've made up my mind. I'm coming out. I'm serving God. Let's lift our hands and praise Him right now. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Let's worship the Lord. Hallelujah. God, we worship you, Lord, tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, I want everything that you have for me, Lord. God, I want to bring my family to your house, God. God, I want to see my family saved, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, let's worship the Lord. Come on. God, we praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 I'm going to come all the way out, God. I'm not going to come part ways, God. I'm going to come all the way. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, we worship you, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Come on, church. That's what the devil wants us to do is just come part way. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I want to come all the way, God. God, I want to come all the way tonight. Hallelujah. Are you holding anything back from the Lord tonight? Has he been dealing with you? Oh, come on. Give it up to the Lord tonight. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. 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 God, I worship you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. This is a month of commitment. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I just want to tell you something. The the devil does not like when people start committing their lives to God. He does not like it when your faith is built up and you're starting to work for God. He cannot stand it. I'll tell you, this last Sunday, my wife and I went and visited a, a, a church. A, a lady had asked us to come and visit. And we got there and her husband said, I want you to preach. Will you preach? And I'll tell you, I just had something come over me. And I said, God gave me a message the other night. And I just pulled it back out. And it was seeing the unseeable. And he speaks about Elisha and how his servant went out and said, 
Oh, he come back in. He said, there's so many things against us. There's so many. There's so many chariots out there. There's so many horses out there. There's so many things against us. And what did he do? He walked right in there and the man of God, Elisha, said, Fear not. How preposterous. All those things out there, i got to fear it. I'm a, you mean to tell me a fear not? I want to tell you something. God wants us to know tonight, fear not. You have my word. The word has come forth tonight. I don't feel a spirit of prophecy. I feel a, feel a spirit of the word, the prophetic word come forth tonight. If you'll draw close to God and you'll follow after God with all your heart, hey, he's going to bless you, bless your family. You're going to see a backslidden child come back. You will. You'll see a child who never has had the Holy Ghost come back to this thing and say, oh, I'll tell you what, look at the other night, Brother Rick, your, your daughter. I tell you, I said, right there, that close to the Holy Ghost. I'll tell you, it's going to happen. I feel a spirit of faith. A spirit of faith. Hey, we need to get behind our pastor. Brother Brown is preaching the Word of God. The Spirit of God is moving. Amen. Let's have revival. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord. God, we love you. We praise you, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. God, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for this night, God. We ask you, Lord, to take this word, Lord, put it deep within our hearts, God. God, we ask you to put it deep within our heart. Let it be a strong seed, God. God, and let us water it, God, with your spirit. In your name, in Jesus' name, we give you all the praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Praise God. You may be dismissed tonight.